0: I ran across just a little comment that someone made about going to the AYP or the Alaska Yukon Pacific Exposition. And so I thought, well, what was that? And so then I went and started looking that up and saw what it was and thought, oh, how fun it would be. I like Seattle. I think Seattle makes a great setting. So that just kind of triggered it. I thought this will be fun. So this was a situation where an event in time stimulated the idea for the series.
1: Welcome to Historical Fiction Unpacked. I'm your host, Allison Treat. Hello readers and welcome back to the show. I'm sitting here recording the podcast looking at this gorgeous fall foliage outside my window. There's a tree in front of my window that every fall it's just a riot of color. It's like orange and burnt um, umber or something like that and it's just beautiful. So this is episode eight of, no, episode nine of season six. And um, I recorded this conversation a few weeks ago with Tracy Peterson. Her book comes out next week. So I can't wait for you to hear this conversation. Tracy Peterson is so well-known and well-loved. She's written a ton of books. She told me in this podcast that I think she releases four to five a year, every year. So it's just, she is so good at writing them, researching them, and she has so much information to share with us. And I just thought, um, there was so much good in this conversation, so much you'll get out of it. So without further ado, here is my conversation with the well-loved author, Tracy Peterson. Tracy, thank you for joining me on the show again today.
0: Thank you for having me. This is such a privilege.
1: Oh, it's great to have you. Again, your latest novel, Knowing You, releases next week on November 7th. It's the latest or the last in your Pictures of the Heart series. Can you tell me about this series?
0: Oh, absolutely. It's, uh, the entire series is set the summer of 1909 in Seattle, Washington, at the Alaska Yukon Pacific Exposition. It was a world fair type thing that they wanted to bring information about Alaska and the Yukon, which just 10 years before had been, you know, massively in the news for their gold rush. And they also wanted to share then Hawaii and the Philippines and Japan and things like that, because they just, they saw this as an opportunity to uh, kind of educate the public, get them excited and also It was kind of one of those starts of really encouraging tourism. (laughs) And so people got excited about these places and things. And and the idea of exploring to these other parts of the world, you know, got everybody's attention. But also during this time, Kodak releases their brand new Brownie camera. And they'd had a Brownie before, but this one was really suited for the, you know, sales to the common person. And even though uh, the camera still costs $10, which would probably be about 500 nowadays, it was one of those situations where up until about this time, you know, if you wanted your picture taken, you had to go to a studio. Well, now they had this camera and it was promoted at this world's fair. So I thought what fun it would be to have some of my characters be camera girls who were taking mm-hmm. pictures around the exposition and encouraging people to buy these cameras.
1: Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, what inspired you to write this story? I mean, it's such a unique idea.
0: It's funny, because I get a lot of my ideas when I'm researching actually for other things. Mm -hmm. And so I was probably, oh, I was trying to think which series I was actually researching on it might even have been the as far back as the um, Oh, secrets of the Golden Gate, or or those kind of the okay. we called it the Big Hat series. <laughs> <laughs> and the, I I ran across just a little comment that someone made about going to the AYP or the Alaska Yukon Pacific Exposition, and so oh, I wow. thought, well, what was that? And so then I went and started looking that up. And saw what it was and thought, oh, how fun it would be, you know, because I like Seattle. I think Seattle makes a great setting. Yes. yes. And uh, so that just kind of triggered it. I thought, this will be fun. So this was a situation where an event in time stimulated the idea for the series rather than a character or a time period, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, that's cool. So tell me about this particular book, Knowing You. Well,
0: Knowing You takes place at, at the end of the fair. And so we have a camera girl named May Parker, but rather than being really the typical camera girl who's going out and taking pictures, she's an artist. And so they've hired her actually to touch up pictures. And mm. in that time period, a lot of times uh, the pictures that were produced were like postcard sized and the various photography studios would hire someone to come in and touch up with paint to do like a a light watercolor wash that Mm, gave the pictures the look of being in color. And so that's what May Parker does. She touches up the paint pictures and, and gives them a little color. What's interesting about May is she's half Japanese and she's half white. And there is something going on in her family background that she doesn't understand and wants very much to know about her Japanese heritage but her mother wants nothing to do with it. And her mother is the one who's Japanese mm-hmm. and her mother will not even allow for Japanese artifacts or any paintings or any kind of things in the house. She wants to forget about Japan and, and may wants to understand why. And there's a young man. He's uh, a police detective assigned to the exposition and his name's Lee Monroe. And he and, and may actually grew up side by side for a time until his parents' racist feelings caused them to move from the neighborhood and so they come together at the fair and the exposition triggers their feelings for one another again and around this there is an intrigue about some missing uh, items some some art heists and some different things that are going on and a and a suit of ar- a samurai armor and so, there's just a lot of intrigue. There's a lot of mystery going on, and then questions, and and just some hints at the the cultural background of of May's character.
1: Right. So, um, how long did the expo last?
0: The the expo lasts from the first of June until I believe it was really like the sixteenth of October.
1: Oh wow! So it's it really was really long. Very
0: long, and it just so happened that year the summer was amazing. It was it was a very warm summer for Seattle. Mm-hmm. It was dry. And so it turned out to be like the perfect weather for this exposition. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, that was fortunate. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, so what inspired you to write May's and Lee's story?
0: I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that, you know, we have so many issues going on in our world around racism, and so many people Mm -hmm. who make such an ordeal about someone who's different. And Mm -hmm. I wanted to show there's nothing new under the sun, first of all. But, you know, I thought I would take a character who didn't really feel like she fit in either the white world or the Japanese world, and deal with some of the problems and issues that she was facing, and how the fret, the, the racist prejudices that went on in Seattle, which that they were numerous and, and especially towards those of Asian persuasion. And, mm-hmm. uh, it was just a, an interesting time period to show in the first place. But when you draw this, this problem in, then you can really see the conflicts and the, and the escalation of where we're at today, even. And so I wanted to use that and then also combine, of course, the spiritual lessons and and things that I think often get misconstrued.
1: Hmm. Yeah, and I was curious about, um, you know, you mentioned already that May wants to know about her Japanese heritage and her mother just wants to forget about it because there's so much pain right. involved there. Um, but May said in the beginning of the book, that she feels almost, I, I'm not sure if this is word for word, but like almost like half a person because she doesn't have knowledge of that, that half of her heritage. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Her father is white. She lives in, in America. She's been raised more white than, than anything. I mean, that's, right. that's been her place in life because of her mother's, you know, unwillingness to even talk about Japan she has very little knowledge and she's desperate for it so when the the fair comes and they have an entire building devoted to japan may finds herself drawn to that and she right. goes there and talks with the people there and she wants to learn about the the japanese uh printed you know uh, the kanji the printed uh, uh language and the uh art and the uh you know, just everything about Japan that she can, uh, being able to learn mm-hmm. to speak Japanese and that kind of thing. But she knows this is a conflict with her mother. And, and so she's torn again right. in, a, in the situation of not dishonoring her mother because they're very close mm-hmm. and making her feel worse about things. But what happens is it slowly draws her mother out and, and allows her to overcome her past and the past had conflict in it where the family was dishonored by the government and, and so forth in Japan. So May is able to finally learn about her past, uh, her ancestors and whatnot. And, yeah. you know, it was just like you said, until that point, she feels like there's a great deal missing.
1: Right. I, it totally makes sense. I just wondered if you, does that did that insight into her feelings about it? Did that come from personal experience for you, or was it just something you might have observed? It
0: actually did. That, that's okay. a, a really good question. Mine came from the fact that uh, my my uh, biological father, my mother and father divorced when I was really young because he was mm. very violent, but he was adopted and didn't have any clue or knowledge about his ancestry. Wow. And I always felt like there was this big chunk of me missing because mm-hmm. I didn't know him very well and he didn't know anything about his past. And so it was just interesting that, you know, that feeling of wondering who am I? Who where did I come from?
1: Right. Who are my
0: people? That kind of thing. Of course, since then I've done DNA testing and found out I'm about half Irish. So <laughs> <laughs> I figured that came from my father because my mother's side is not.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Thank you for sharing that. That's really interesting. And I, I know it's like, we have this innate desire to know where we come from and who we are. Exactly. Yeah. So what lessons or themes come out in this novel, you kind of touched on them a little bit, but can you go into more depth?
0: Sure. Um, You know, one of the most powerful things for me is that you can't let the past failures, mistakes, or even the absence of be the uh, focus of your life. Otherwise, it totally messes with the present and the future. And so letting go of the past, finding peace with who you are, in and trusting God to lead you and guide you into the rest, you know, that kind of is is the situation that my characters go through in this story. There's also the issue of forgiveness in that letting go of the past. There were things to forgive mm-hmm. and the the wrongs that were done to May's mother by her family and by the the government. You know, she had to learn to forgive and yeah. not just hold on to that because it was destroying her peace of mind and happiness as well as May's. And so there's that. And in e- each of my books, forgiveness always plays a big part.
1: Mm. Yeah, it's so important. And I'm sure you know that from your experience. I do.
0: I've had to be forgiven much, and I've had to forgive much. And the thing that I really try to stress across to the reader in the books uh, is how liberating Mm -hmm. forgiveness is.
1: Yeah, that's very true. Uh, You're very prolific. How many books do you release every year? Is there? Yeah, I
0: released four to five. I just turned in book 140. Wow. (laughs) And I have another 12 contracted.
1: Oh my goodness. Wow, that's amazing. So I'm sure you have this down to a science. And I'm wondering if you can share some of your research process and how you make sure your books are historically accurate while writing so many books a year.
0: I. I really value the research and I try to go to the places I write about if at all possible. I'm doing a a series the next series that I will will have out next spring is set in Cheyenne, Wyoming. So mm-hmm. we're making another trip down to Cheyenne next week to um do some research down there mm-hmm. and get uh you know I've got some connections with different people and and whatnot, and to me, that's really it's critical because the more I know, the more I can weave it into the story as just a common element of the story, like a secondary character, mm. and not have to scramble and try to to find things that that will help the story to be realistic. Oftentimes, I hear from the readers that that's one thing that they absolutely love when they read something that's from their location, yeah, and. The the author has bothered to make it realistic and has bothered to learn about, you know, the weather or about the, the mm. location of, of different landmarks and, and the feel and atmosphere and the attitude and what people there think and feel. And so those things are all just critical to a story. But, you know, for me, I'm never working on just one book at a time. And so I'm usually researching one book while I am I might be uh, writing up a detailed synopsis for another. I, mm-hmm. I write from a synopsis, but I don't marry it. You know, if, if I want to stray off of it, I do. Uh, I just use it like a roadmap. But I like yeah. to have it sketched out because I like to write my first draft fast and furiously. And so if I'm writing, I have a goal to write a chapter a day. And so with this chapter by chapter synopsis, then I can knock out a 30 chapter book in 30 days. And I write that, like I said, that first draft gets down fast and furiously. And then I start going over it editing every day. I start by going over what I wrote the day before that gets me in the flow. That helps me to, you know, just do a little trim, a little edit as I go. And then when I get about halfway through the book, I put it aside for a couple of days and just take a break. And then I read it from start to where I left off. And that usually helps me to catch any, any of the places where I've dropped a character or I've uh, lost track of a thread that I wanted to weave throughout the story. And so then once I get through that first half of the book, then I start writing the second half. At the end of the second half, I'll do the same thing. I'll put it aside. I'll, I'll reread the second half and go over it, edit. And then I'll go over the whole thing two or three times before it ever goes in. And uh, for me, it's just a process that has worked. And, you know, we often talk about seat of the pants writers who just sit down and write. Yeah. I'm a plotter. I want that plot on paper, but you know, we're doing the same thing. My chapter by chapter synopsis is just a very abbreviated version of the seat of the pantsers full, full length manuscript. And mm-hmm. I, you know, we we basically are doing the same thing, only I, you know, in just a different format. So, for me, that has worked in all these years. That's how I have managed to do four to five books a year.
1: Right, and obviously, it works for you. I've heard advice about not going back and reading your draft until you're done with that first draft. So that's interesting. I think it's really just dependent on the author and what works best.
0: I think it for is that person. Too. A lot of times, too, for me, what happens is when I go back, sometimes I will catch just some little something that I've said or written into the story for no real reason that I didn't think. But Mm -hmm. when I see it there, then I all of a sudden get an idea for a subplot that I want to through the story. And so for me, it's important that I keep constant attention to, you know, what I've written and why and then be able to take it and move it forward.
1: Yeah. And that's, I can see how that's happened with me as well, where you say, oh, I can bring this out later in the story. Whereas if you didn't go back and look at it, you might not think of that. And it would take more work later to do that, to put it in. Exactly. Yeah. So um, what's interesting to me is that what you're saying about how a, a pantser and a plotter are doing the same thing. <laughs> I, f- I feel like Kimberly Woodhouse told me that too. I think that she said this, something very similar when I talked to her. And I know that, um, you know, I talked to you maybe a year s- or so ago and, and I re I, because your episode was so popular, I used it again in the spring as a replay. And then I also interviewed Kimberly Woodhouse earlier this year. Um, but I, and then I knew, I discovered through that, that you have written books together, which I didn't yes. know yes. before.
0: <laughs> yeah, I've long been a mentor to Kim, yes. but we've both been friends for a long time. And so, yes, that relationship runs quite deep.
1: That's wonderful. And did she approach you about writing together or was, whose idea was it?
0: No, actually, it was my idea. Oh. Uh, the thing is, when I first started writing, I wrote for Barbara Publishing, and those were short little romantic stories. They did a series called Heart Song Presents, oh. and there were two historicals and two contemporaries every month.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: eventually, I became the managing editor of that line, and we published it out of our house for Barbara Publishing, and, oh, wow. you know, I'd hired my husband to help, my daughter, and... Uh, Gal from our church. And so we ran Heart Song Presents for several years. And during that time, Kim had written a fan letter to me and mm-hmm. she had talked about her interest in writing. And at that time, I was co writing, I think uh, at that time, I was co writing with Judith Miller. But prior okay. to that, I had co written with Judy Pella. And Judy Pella was at a conference and had announced that she and Michael Phillips had just stopped decided to stop their co-writing. And that was in like 1994, I think. And so totally uncharacteristic of me, and I believe totally a God thing, I approached Judy Pella at the conference and asked her if she would ever consider co-writing with anybody else. And so we got to talking. She wanted to know what I had in mind. I eventually ended up sending her the manuscript that I had in mind. She was very interested. And we formed an alliance through that and uh, became partners and wrote six books together. And after that, you know, it helped me by getting my foot into Bethany house for one thing. Yeah. And I decided, you know, I would pay it forward. And that's why I've had several different co-writes. I've co-written with James Scott bell. That was an arrangement put together by the publishing house. Wow. I, you know, co-wrote with Judy Miller and Judy's a dear friend and, and lived in, we both lived in Topeka, Kansas at that time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, just teamed up and, and really enjoyed, uh, you know, we both enjoyed history so much. And so it was fun to travel with her and, and co-write the books. And then, you know, as, as, you know, down through the, the years, it's just been a way to kind of pay it forward. And so I was praying about it one day and Kim and I had been longtime friends and I knew she was writing and, Was, you know, trying to, trying to kind of figure out what she wanted to do writing wise. And I asked her, I said, are, you know, I think we should write together. Are you interested? You know, and of course she was, she was just so excited and, and Mm -hmm. we then together and talked to the publisher and, and decided, you know, that's what we wanted to do. And we both had such a love and passion for Alaska. I've been there several dozen times and she used to live there. And so we decided, you know, our very first book was set in Alaska and a lot of the books thereafter have been also.
1: Right. That's great. Every time I talk to um, people who co-write or collaborate together on a book, um, I'm just always fascinated by the process because it does seem like it's different for each team, but I don't know. Has it been the same? You've done it with several different people. So have you followed the same process? With different people, or actually,
0: what? I ha- for the most part I have because okay. I think you know just the way that things went with Judith Pella, it worked so well. I had the first draft, I gave it to her, and she went over it, added to it, deleted from it, uh, helped to round out the plot line, and and all that. After mm-hmm. we after that first book, she and I would either get together or we would talk it out and and create a plot and we would decide where we wanted these characters going and how we wanted them to, you know, move throughout the story. Hmm. And that worked so well for me that then when other opportunities came up to co-write with someone, that was the way that I suggested it be done because I was comfortable with it and it worked. And so that's the way we've done it ever since. The other thing is though, I really pray a lot about any of these co-writes because it, it's such an intimate relationship with another author that you want to make sure that it's right. Yeah. And so I would read what they had written. If they had books out already, I would pray over it and, and really try to, to get a feel for if I thought that our styles could mesh. And, you know, we had to, to me, we needed to have the same passion. And that was that the writing was a ministry. Mm. And because, you know, it's been my experience that that when you team up with somebody and you don't both have the end goal in sight, and and you don't have the same thought of where you want to take this project, it really causes conflict. Mm -hmm. And so in every situation when I have teamed up, you know, for the most part, it has been such that, you know, we both had a passion for writing, we both had a passion for God, and, you know, felt like that the books were a great way to share encouragement with the reader.
1: Right, I would think it would be such a delicate balance that you really want to make sure, you know, you're listening to the voice of God in that and not just (laughs) forging ahead with something that might not work out very well. Exactly. Yeah. So what are you working on next? I mean, probably several things, but can you tell us about any of them?
0: Absolutely. Come spring, I have a new series coming out, and it will be a three-book series set in Cheyenne, Wyoming, with a follow-up three-book series set in Cheyenne, Wyoming. (laughs) (laughs) So there's going to be six books that are set in Cheyenne. I'm going to start with the the forming of Cheyenne with the uh, uh, Transcontinental Railroad coming through and creating this town. Mm. And that will be the late 1860s. And the second series will take place in the
1: late 1880s. Okay. So I know you mentioned going down to Cheyenne,
0: right? Is it down for
1: you? Yeah. Yes. Yes. So no. um, when you go somewhere to, because we're talking about researching, how do you, because it's not the same as it was in the time right. period you're writing about. So how do you find out what it was like then?
0: There are a lot of things that I like to do. I like to go to the museums and look at the archives for their uh, oldest pictures of the location. Mm. I like to talk to the area historians, if possible. My uh, passion for history is such that, you know, I have found generally when people have a passion for history, they love to tell what they know. My husband's yeah. a historian, and so that has been an immense help and, and uh, uh, benefit to my writing. Right, So sure. I'll go to these places, and, and the thing is, the general lay of the land is still the lay of the land. The, you know, the river may have been altered by the Army Corps of Engineers, so I try to find out about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are various different things that can be altered, but, you know, the lay of the land is still so very similar to how it's always been that there are ways that, you know, I I like to take the pictures that I have found in the archives and then take pictures of my, of the same areas for myself and then compare them and Mm -hmm. get a feel for that and how it has changed or hasn't. I love to read diary accounts. And so a lot of times when you go to um, the local museums and you talk to the archivists there you're able to get a hold of diaries from that area from local people that you might not ever see otherwise. And those are absolutely precious because a lot of times, uh, you know, the various museums and whatnot, uh, the historical society for the state has held on to diaries that might not have been by anybody famous at all. Mm Mm-hmm but they were there. And so a lot of times those kind of diary accounts are the very best. They'll talk about everyday life. And for me, that's just so valuable as an author. I can sit there and and pour over the details of, you know, what they were doing when they hand dug their well or Mm -hmm. how they had to bring all their animals into the little cabin when the blizzard hit or whatever, you know? And so you, you get all these, these, elements of their everyday life. And those are just so valuable to a writer.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, those um, primary sources are, um, there's nothing like that. No. So this is my last question for you. And it's kind of a fun question. If you could choose to live in any time in history, other than right now, what time period would you choose? Oh,
0: goodness, that's hard, because the more I research, the more I realize how lucky we are. (laughs) You know, as as far as just for the excitement of it all, maybe the late, you know, 1890s or something, Mm. you know, of course, the way I am, then I start thinking, oh, but they didn't have medicine, they didn't have this, they, you know, no antibiotics, and they didn't have and, you know, and I go down my list of they didn't have. And so, you know, I feel like that. But the time period was very interesting for the industrial age and the way America was coming of age in yeah. the, the late 1800s and the the inventions of things. You know, the telephone and electricity mm-hmm. and, and flying and all these different things that you see in those, you know, the latter half of the or the latter few years of the 1800s and into the early 1900s. It is a fascinating time period to right. be sure.
1: Yeah, it must have been very exciting to see all that happening or I don't know. I just wonder what it was, what it would have been like to to watch that. And you probably yes. didn't realize how, what a change was happening right in front of you.
0: But I'm very content with my time period. So, yes, <laughs> I, wouldn't, I, I wouldn't go back.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I understand that.
0: Especially, you know, when you consider that some of those outfits that the women wore, the very wealthy, you know, some of those <laughs> gowns and all their
1: undergarments that went, oh away, my goodness, they could, they could weigh up to 70 pounds. <laughs> yeah, that would not be fun, especially on a yeah. hot day.
0: I just can't imagine, dra- you know, dragging a dress around that's, that's you know, 70 pounds of velvet, you know.
1: Right. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, Tracy, this has been a wonderful conversation. What is the best way for listeners to follow you?
0: Well, they can go to my website at www.tracypeterson.com, or they can go to my Facebook page.
1: Yeah, I will make sure to link to those in the show notes so people can find you easily and um, find your books too. So thank you so much for being with us today. This was great. Thank you for having me, Allison. It was a lot of fun. Well, friends, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Tracy. Um, I just thought it was so interesting, the subject matter of her book and the themes that ran through it, and also um, the other things we talked about, like her writing and research process, just so much to be discovered in that conversation. So let me ask you to please go to the show notes, which you can find either in your podcatching app or online at allisontreat.com slash blog. That's A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T dot com slash B-L-O-G. And um, that is where all the show notes live. If this is the latest episode, then you'll find it at the top of the that page. And um, if not, scroll down and you will find it somewhere on that page. But the show notes are where you will find links, to Tracy's books and to her website and Facebook page, as well as other helpful links, including links to um, sign up for my newsletter list, which is a great resource for you if you'd like to know what I'm doing, what I'm writing, what I'm researching. Um, you know, since you're listening to this, I imagine you're interested in history and I do share a little history bite in every newsletter. And I also share about the podcast and about, um, books I'm reading. And you also get some freebies when you first sign up for the newsletter. So make sure you head to the show notes to do that. And also another way you can help the podcast is to make sure that you are subscribed or following the show in your podcasting app. Um, so just so you know, if you're in Apple podcasts, now it's called following the show instead of subscribing, but also, um, I really need reviews. I I would love it if you would hit the rating and review. You just go to my show and you like scroll down to the bottom of all the episodes and there it shows you the reviews and you can tap on a five-star rating and leave me a five-star review. And that would, really help other people find the show. So I'd be forever grateful if you do that. I might even mention your name on the show. Well, friends, you know that I always close us out with a quote. And I found this great quote, um, since we're talking about Tracy's book, which has themes of forgiveness and finding peace. um, I found this great quote by Charles H. Brent. He said, peace comes when there is no cloud between us and God. Peace is the consequence of forgiveness, God's removal of that which obscures His face, and so breaks union with Him. So, my friends, I hope you have peace today, and keep reading historical fiction. I will talk to you again next week.